from my heart and from my hand Why don't people understand my intention? Yeah, let's talk about some weird science, as you may well know. Radio Parallax is one of three science-oriented shows. At least we're a part-time science-oriented show, heard on KDVS. Planetary Radio, that excellent program hosted by Matt Kaplan, whom we've had on, uh, as a guest on the show more than once. And for the past couple of years, they've been heard on Friday mornings. It was produced at one of our sister UC radio stations, that's KUCI in Irvine. And, of course, every Tuesday morning there is This Week in Science, which I know has quite a few fans among you. And I would note that uh, Justin has been occasionally my teammate on one of the pub quiz uh, uh, (laughs) KDVS efforts uh, at the Bistro 33 on Monday nights, hosted by KDVS's own Dr. Andy Jones. Our team has won before, and I hope that we will win again. But we're going to talk about science and environmental issues mostly for this segment. Let's start with... A book, a book titled Merchants of Doubt. It's subtitled How a Handful of Scientists Obscured the Truth on Issues from Tobacco Smoke to Global Warming. This is worth a few minutes of our time. The book is by Naomi Oreskes and Eric Conway, and we're indebted to truthout.org for this discussion. It had a review on Truthout by Seri. We started out talking about scientist Ben Santer, who works at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratories. As noted in the book, he's one of the world's most distinguished scientists, a recipient of a 1998 MacArthur Genius Award, as well as numerous prizes and distinctions from his employer, the U.S. Department of Energy. That's because he's done just about more than anyone else to prove the human causes of global warming. Dr. Sander is an atmospheric scientist at Lawrence Livermore's National Laboratory's Model Diagnosis and Intercomparison Project which is an enormous international project to store the results of climate models from around the globe, distribute them to other researchers, and compare the models, both with real-world data and with each other. Over the past 20 years, remember I referenced to 1988 earlier, Sander and his colleagues have shown that our planet is warming. It's warming in just the way you would expect if greenhouse gases were the cause. Because it's noted, natural climate variation leaves different patterns and traces than warming caused by greenhouse gases. Santa's been looking at these fingerprints. And his fingerprinting has shown that the troposphere of our Earth is warming while our stratosphere is cooling. Findings which point at global warming due to greenhouse gases. The article notes the distinction between the troposphere and the stratosphere became part of the Supreme Court hearing in the case of Massachusetts et al. versus the EPA, where 12 states sued the federal government for failing to regulate carbon dioxide as a pollutant under the Clean Air Act. Justice Antonin Scalia, of course, dissented, arguing there was nothing in the law to require the EPA to act. But he got kind of lost in the science the article notes and at one point referred to the stratosphere when he meant the troposphere. A lawyer from Massachusetts replied, Respectfully, Your Honor, it is not the stratosphere, it is the troposphere. The justice answered, Troposphere, whatever. I told you before, I'm not a scientist. That's why I don't want to deal with global warming. Noted sorry in her discussion, but 
we all have to deal with global warming, whether we like it or not. Now, the article, referring to the book, notes how Dr. Sander got involved in the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is the world's leading authority on climate issues. It was established, by the way, back in 1988 by the World Meteorological Organization and the United Nations Environmental Program. Keep in mind, 23 years ago. Now, along the way, Sander produced some different data, like a good scientist should, based on what information he was getting. But for this, he was attacked by a group of physicists tied to a think tank in Washington, D.C. They accused him of doctoring the reports to make the science seem firmer than it really was. They wrote reports accusing him of scientific cleansing, expunging the views of those who did not agree. And they wrote reports with titles like Greenhouse Debate Continued and Doctoring the Documents, which they placed in places like Energy Daily and Investors Business Daily, that noted scientific publication. Well, the book points out that what Sander had done was to make changes in his reports in response to peer review. He'd done what the IPCC rules required him to do. He'd done what science requires him to do. And for that, he was being attacked. Now, we've criticized the Wall Street Journal on this show numerous times, and we were doing that before it was bought by Rupert Murdoch. Because although I know they do some fine reporting, their editorial pages seem to, <laughs> seem to be based on what the powers that be, those that uh, tell the editors what they should write, as opposed to what the reporting would suggest. Anyway, Sander tried to defend himself in a letter to the editor of the Wall Street Journal, a letter that was signed by 29 co-authors who were all distinguished scientists, including the director of the U.S. Global Change Research Project, the American Meteorological Society, and the founder and chairman of the IPCC. They corroborated Sander's account, but found that the journal only published a portion of both Sanders' letter and letters in defense of him. And two weeks later, they gave the accusers another opportunity to sling mud, publishing a letter declaring that the IPCC record had been tampered with. But the authors note this um, attack did not withstand scrutiny. And they asked, why didn't Sanders' accusers bother to find out the facts? Why did they continue to repeat charges long after they've been shown to be unfounded? Well, the answer, of course, is they were not interested in finding facts. They were interested in fighting them. Article notes that a few years after this episode, Sandy was reading the morning paper and came across an article describing how some scientists had participated in a program organized by the tobacco industry to discredit scientific evidence linking tobacco to cancer. The idea, the article explained, was to keep the controversy alive, feeling that so long as there was a doubt, <laughs> as long as there was, I guess, a shadow of doubt, about the causal link, the tobacco industry might be safe from litigation and regulation. Sander thought that story seemed eerily familiar. Turned out he was right, but there was more. Not only were the tactics the same, the people were the same. The leaders of the attack on him were two retired physicists, Friedrich Seitz and Siegfried Singer. Seitz was a solid-state physicist who'd risen to prominence during World War II when he helped build the atomic bomb. He later became president of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences. Singer, too, was a physicist. In fact, the proverbial rocket scientist who became a leading figure in the development of Earth observation satellites. He served as the first director of the National Weather Satellite Service and later as chief scientist 
at the Department of Transportation in the Reagan administration. Both men were extremely hawkish, having believed passionately in the gravity of the Soviet threat and the need to defend the United States with high-tech weaponry. Both were associated with a conservative think tank in Washington, D.C., the George C. Marshall Institute, which was founded to defend Ronald Reagan's strategic defense initiative, better known as Star Wars. Both, by the way, had previously worked for the tobacco industry, helping cast doubt on the scientific evidence, as we say, linking smoking to death. The book notes that from 1979 to 85, Fred Seitz directed a program for R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company that distributed $45 million to scientists around the country for biomedical research that could generate evidence and cultivate experts to be used in court to, quote, defend the product, unquote. In the mid-90s, Fred Singer, for his part, co-authored a major report attacking the U.S. EPA over the health risks of secondhand smoke. And, by the way, his anti-EPA report was funded by a grant from the Tobacco Institute, which channeled it through a think tank, the Alexis de Tocqueville Institution. Book notes that there was a pattern repeating itself here. Fred Singer, Fred Seitz, and a handful of other scientists joined forces with think tanks and private corporations to challenge scientific evidence on a host of contemporary issues. And it's noted that most recently, over the course of the last two decades, and against the face of mounting evidence, they dismissed the reality of global warming. First, they claimed there was none. Then they claimed it was just a natural variation. Then they claimed that even if it was happening... And it was our fault. It didn't matter because we could just adapt to it. Which, by the way, <laughs> were the, the three stages of a cover-up my buddy John and I worked out in uh, coffeehouse bowl sessions in the late 70s. If you want to cover something up, first deny it, then say, well, maybe there's some truth to it, but the facts aren't correct, and finally say, oh yeah, it's true, but it's not that important. And the book notes, men paid attention to these two guys, and they were joined by a couple of other physicists, Robert Jastrow and William Nirenberg, in writing a report questioning the evidence of global warming. Well, next thing you know, they were invited to the White House to Bush the, to brief the first Bush administration. George Herbert Walker Bush even referred to them as my scientists. And by the way, what a coincidence, Jastrow and Nirenberg were also involved in promoting the Strategic Defense Initiative as a way to defend the U.S. from a Soviet or other missile attack, which after spending hundreds of billions of dollars over the past 28 years has yet to demonstrate in any capacity that it would work. Now we're talking about guys like Seitz, Singer, Nirenberg, Jastrow. These are guys that know admirals and generals. They know congressmen and senators. They even know presidents. They've also dealt extensively with the media, so they know how to get press coverage for their views. And, of course, they appear to be lavishly funded. And while we're talking about some prominent physicists here, it's noted that over the course of the last 20 years, these men did almost no original scientific research on any of the issues upon which they weighed in. Furthermore, on every issue, they were on the wrong side of the scientific consensus. Noted the authors, smoking does kill, both directly and indirectly. Pollution does cause acid rain. Volcanoes are not the cause of the ozone hole. Our seas are rising and our glaciers are melting because of the mounting effects of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere produced by burning fossil fuels. Yet, for years, the press quoted these men as experts, and politicians listened to them using their claims as justification for inaction. 
At any rate, the book is titled Merchants of Doubt, How a Handful of Scientists Obscured the Truth on Issues from Tobacco Smoke to Global Warming, and we may seek to bring the authors on this program in the future. And Radio Parallax needs to weigh in on one issue of the day related to global warming, that of compact fluorescence. This correspondent has to uh, perhaps reluctantly agree with Rick Moran, writing in AmericaThinker.com, who asked, are you stockpiling incandescent light bulbs? Noting, you should. Because as of January 2012, the traditional 100-watt light bulb most of us grew up with will be contraband items in America, replaced in a fit of nanny state nonsense by those dim, corkscrewy, energy-efficient, quote-unquote, fluorescent bulbs, which are, of course, far more expensive, give our skin a corpse-like pallor, and contain trace amounts of the toxic element mercury. Noted Moran that if you should drop one, the EPA recommends that you open your windows and leave the room for 10 minutes. But yes, this is a sort of a backhanded way of dealing with global warming, which we're using in lieu of a carbon tax, which makes infinitely more sense. Compact fluorescents suck. And one can only hope this will spur an effort to, uh, to bring about a reduction in the price of LEDs. But as we've talked about in this program in the past, there's the law of unintended consequences. If you generate less heat with your light, well, then you have to use more heat in the winter, don't you? Only put a higher tax on electricity or, for God's sakes, a carbon tax so that the market would naturally regulate our use of energy. Another related story we've been sitting on for a while, there was a, a commentary by Paul Krugman last April about someone we've had on this program, Professor Richard Muller of Berkeley. He's a physicist, noted Krugman, who'd gotten to the climate skeptic game. And when we spoke to Dr. Uh, Muller, he, he wasn't necessarily convinced it wasn't happening. He just wasn't sure that it was as clear-cut a case of man-caused global warming as opposed to natural causes. Well, Dr. Muller has looked at the data and concluded that, uh, no, it does look as though greenhouse gases are the culprit. He was given kudos for by Paul Krugman for making statements to this effect before Congress, where certain Republicans had brought him on board, hoping he would tow the <laughs> the global warming denier uh, line, and uh, he fooled them, apparently because he's a good scientist. For that interview, by the way, like for all of our interviews conducted over the past uh, seven years, you can find them on our archives at radioparallax.com. Dr. Mullins was a good one. He wrote a book called Physics for Presidents, and um, we enjoyed speaking with him very much. Check that one out sometime. And by the way, this might be a good time to interject a partial apology, with emphasis on the word partial, by Radio Parallax to the late Thor Heyerdahl. On this program in the past, we have referred to his crackpot theory that Polynesia was settled by people from South America, but we did note carefully that there probably were some individuals who did make it from the southern western hemisphere landmass out into Polynesia, but it was not the major, it was not the bulk of the people who settled the area. Well, um, evidence for exactly that has uh, been published. Eric Thorsby of the University of Oslo, Norway, Thor Heyerdahl's hometown, collected blood samples from Easter Islanders whose ancestors had reportedly not interbred with Europeans or other visitors, which I frankly have my doubts about. But at any rate, they looked at their HLA genes, which are quite variable, 
and from which you can occasion tell where uh, somebody uh, originated genetically. And they found that a few people carried versions which are only found in Native Americans. Last week, Thorsby presented his findings to the Royal Society in London and said that uh, although Easter Island was primarily colonized from Asia, a few Americans could have reached it before Europeans got there in 1722. Which we freely conceded, so hence only a partial apology. Taylor, that Contiki, still a hell of a book. We have to stand by the notion that the, the idea that the Polynesian islands were settled from South America is still basically a crackpot theory. And listening to a KQED while driving back from the Bay Area uh, last week, I heard a fantastic interview with author James B. Stewart. About his book, Tangled Webs, How False Statements Are Undermining America, from Martha Stewart to Bernie Madoff. Stewart has noted with great dismay how lying has become accepted in modern America. Most striking example was when they were about to prosecute I-Scooter Libby uh, for the outing of Valerie Plame in the Bush administration, which, by the way, probably came from Cheney or Bush. Nevertheless, I-Scooter Libby took the hit for it, lied, and was, uh, and was nailed for lying. But while this was all going down, Senator K. Bailey Hutchinson from Texas said, well, if they convict Scooter Libby, I hope it's for something substantial, not just for, like, perjury, which caused Stewart to note in the interview, you know, perjury's a felony. It's a felony in America. It was, it was a felony under English common law. It was a felony in the Roman Empire, and it's in the Ten Commandments. Lying is not okay. Which is why, ladies and gentlemen, we don't do it on this program. Lies, lies, I can't believe a word you say. Lies, lies, are gonna make you sad someday. Someday you're gonna... We gotta bring James Stewart on this show to talk to him directly, but unfortunately it will not happen today, and we're also out of time for this segment, so let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We got plenty more. Don't go away. Such a smart girl And I'll believe what you say 